everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Kid You Not Podcast. It's been a while, sorry about the long time without us. I know you've probably missed us a lot. We have, but we had to have the summer off. I'm sure you had a holiday this summer too. <laughs> exactly. Today, we are going to talk about um, a motif of children's literature that is omnipresent in children's literature because it is omnipresent in children's lives, hopefully. The concept of the mother. The figure of the mother, this um, ubiquitous figure that is always there and is a very ambiguous and ambivalent one. And to prove this, we're going to read two extracts to you from two very different books. But with two very familiar interpretations of the mother. But why couldn't Quirrell touch me? Your mother died to save you. If there is one thing Voldemort cannot understand, it is love. He didn't realize that love, as powerful as your mother's for you, leaves its own mark. Not the scar, no visible sign. To have been loved so deeply, even though the person who loved us is gone, will give us some protection forever. It is in your very skin. Quirrell, full of hatred, greed and ambition, sharing his soul with Voldemort, could not touch you for this reason. It was agony to touch a person marked by something so good. It sounded like her mother. Coraline went into the kitchen where the voice had come from. A woman stood in the kitchen with her back to Coraline. She looked a little like Coraline's mother, only... only her skin was white as paper. Only she was taller and thinner. Only her fingers were too long and they never stopped moving and her dark red fingernails were curved and sharp. Coraline, the woman said, is that you? And then she turned round. Her eyes were big black buttons. Lunchtime, Coraline, said the woman. Who are you? asked Coraline. I'm your other mother, said the woman. Go and tell your father that lunch is ready. <laughs> Thank you, Lauren. And so this first extract was, um, well, if you don't know what it was from, <laughs> what are you doing listening to this podcast? It was an extract from Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. And the second extract was from Neil Gaiman's Coraline. And in um, these two extracts, we actually have two traditional views of the mother, but extremely contradictory ones, uh, but which are quite representative of different types of mothers that we find in children's literature. In Harry Potter, as you notice, the concept of the mother is very sanctified. The mother died to save Harry's life, and indeed, after lingering protection in his veins, meaning that evil people like Voldemort cannot touch him. Whereas Coraline, and we're going to maybe start with this, Coraline draws from the tradition of the fairy tale. It's a sort of a gothic or re reworking of, a, of traditional fairy tales, because Obviously, historically, um, in fairy tales, what you have is a lot of uh, stepmothers and other mothers, mothers who, yeah, who are supposed to be motherly towards the children that they've adopted, um, whether or not they want it. But obviously, like, like in Snow White, like in Cinderella, um, these stepmothers are used to displace the child's anxieties and, and hatred of their own mothers onto um, figures that are more easily hateable and detestable sounds much less threatening than if it was the mother who had given them life and actually given birth to them. Right, and so meanwhile there is a second sort of motherly figure in those fairy tales who is the fairy godmother and who is the, the white side of the mother, the side that the children want to love, the, ch the side that 
um, is protective, that you know is generous and is completely devoted to the, 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 the child and in the traditional fairy tale, we have this ontological split of the figure of the mother. This is all from Bruno Bettelheim's um, first psychoanalytical studies of fairy tales. Uh, and this splitting of the mother allows for um, an easier way for the child to deal with their anxieties and negative and positive impulses towards the mother figure. Exactly. So in fairy tales, bad mothers tend to not be biological mothers, at least on a surface mm. reading of them. And so I think it's fair to say that this sort of bad mother and good mother, with their presences and their absences, because that's another important aspect of the discussion of mothers that we're going to have, there's the absent mother and the, the strangely present mother. Um, these, this sort of model of the, the, the mother in fairy tales finds itself um, replicated quite a lot within even very contemporary children's literature like Coraline and like, and like Harry Potter. There is another tradition of children's literature, which is to get rid of the parents entirely. I think we might, you know, we might get that out of the way, first of all. Yeah. Pippi Longstocking couldn't have had her adventures with interfering parents, neither could most of Enid Blyton's characters. Yeah, well, um, Pippi has a father uh, who appears, and there's a whole book where she goes into the... To, to the tropical islands where her dad is the king of the cannibals um, but it's, it's more of a sort of token fun father she definitely could not I think um, you're right have a mother the temptation to get rid of the parents entirely to let the children have their adventures is very big and perhaps because the mother is traditionally the more anxious the more controlling side of the parents especially her she has to be gotten rid of because maybe the dad won't be too anxious about the children roaming around but the mother might be and traditionally in I suppose, society, the father was always thought of as more distant to the children yeah. than the mother. So maybe that's another reason why it's all right for a dad to be around there because he's more removed. Mm. You can see life. that in Peter Pan, actually, where Mrs. Darling is much more worried about what's happening to the children than <laughs> Mr. Darling in, in general. And so we have this, you know, getting rid of the parents is a very, very common trope. It, yeah, either the child goes away, as in the case of Peter Pan or Enid Blyton, uh, where the mother just functions as a distant figure that may feed the child mm-hmm. and provide the ultimate hope of shelter, basically fulfilling traditional feminine roles. Yeah, and you find that a lot in, in old comics, actually, and in, uh, and in a few picture books, but especially in comics, it's very striking to see that very often the mothers... Uh, this is a plane, by the way, going ob- above my house, if you hear a very strange noise. <laughs> um, the mother in, in many comics, in many... I'm thinking spe- specifically of French and Belgian comics... Um, will be part of the domestic space, but very often not acknowledged in the, in, the, in the verbal text. She'll be there in the visual background of the story, making food with an apron, looking at the child, looking, looking at the father. But she won't be acknowledged textually because she's not important enough to be part of the textual material. She's there in the background. And in many picture books, that is also um, the same in quite a lot of picture book series. Uh, and then we have the, the normalization, in a way, of, of traditional motherly roles um, through the visual text. Because it's important to remember that when the mother is in the background, she's a comforting presence, isn't she? She's um, the reason she's there. She provides the ultimate safety blanket for the child and 
by proxy the reader. She's almost metonymous for the, the home, for the mm. house. She's almost um, a, a, an embodiment of domesticity, an embodiment of, of ultimate protection in the home and away and home pattern. She's not there in the away time, but she will be there on the home side, um, on, on either side of the, of, of the away time. And so in the traditional journey, in traditional children's literature, there's going to be this mother-slash-home well, womb really to, to, to come back to in a very discreet and all the more ideological way. And then, of course, there is the dead mother. <laughs> yes, so this is where we get to um, another type of absence. It's not an absence because she's not worth mentioning. If anything, it's the exact contrary. The dead mother, an incredibly common um, figure in children's literature, is the ultimate absence that is a presence. Yeah, in most books where this is a feature, the mother is almost a presence in the lab, definitely in the Harry Potter books. Both parents may as well be alive. They are such big characters. Double act. The twins' parent is constantly there. They refuse to accept their dad's Mm. new girlfriend because she can't replace their mother. Yeah, double act by Jacqueline Wilson has two twins called uh, Ruby and Garnet, and their mother is called Opal, am I right? I can't remember the mother's name. Um, but but there right. is this whole mystique, even even within the names of the, the you know the girls are precious stones like the mother. There's this whole you know the the, the presence of the mother, um, of the dead mother is absolutely crucial. And the way in which the, the the twins describe the death of the mother is quite interesting because there's something of the unspeakable in the dead mother. Um, if I remember well, so the double act takes the form of a, of a diary which both twins alternatively write in, and um, and Ruby tell, tells Garnet, "You do it, I can't do it." And then Garnet writes it in the form of a story saying, once upon a time there was a lovely woman called Opal who met someone who had twins and the two little girls grew up but one day um, Opal fell ill and died and then that's the end and then and then she passes back the diary to Ruby and they go on talking about something else. So to expel this sort of completely unspeakable motive of the dead mother, they have to tell it in the form of a story within a, you know, within a story. There's something completely inconceivable in the idea of losing your mother and yet it's all over children's literature. It's the premise behind one of my favourite books, regular listeners will know, Mimi, Mimi by John Newman. The mother's absence is the focus of the story, it's the epicentre of the whole thing. In fact, the devastating impact of the absence of the mother leaves the children with an absent father, pretty much, because although he's there in his body, he doesn't take care of them, he doesn't wash their clothes, he doesn't step in to fill the... Until other motherly figures turn up and force him into this role of father, which is quite interesting Mm. because what happens is that I can't exactly remember. There's there's her aunt turning up, isn't there? There's a couple of aunts. Yeah, these these other women figures who say, you know, you you have to keep on being the father, not the absent father, because the mother is absent. But when you think about it, historically, it made sense Mm. to have to prepare children for the death of the mother because. Mothers died all the time in childbirth or wherever it was, but now very few children, thankfully, um, have this horrible experience of losing their mother. And yet, children's literature, contemporary children's literature, it was replete with allusions to dead mothers or to or to you know systematically um, absent mothers. So systematically absent mothers brings us to another type, I suppose, which began to occur in more recent children's literature that deals with the breakup of the family. So, as we know, Jacqueline Wilson's books specialise in... Social, realistic problems within the family. Exactly, and very few of them have the 
conventional nuclear family setup. Notably, very rarely is there an absent mother in her books. It's almost always the father. Yeah, or the absence of the mother is dealt with in in, in a different way. And I knew you were gonna you want to talk about uh, the illustrated mum. A, re- a recurrent theme in this book by Jacqueline Wilson, the illustrated mum, which is one I think of her best is the mother not coming back to sleep at the, at the home. I don't know if that struck you when you read it, but to me, that was one thing that I remember very clearly reading it as a child. Um, the mother very often didn't come back to, to sleep at night at their home. And, um, and this is a source of intense anxiety for the, for the narrator. And we should point out at this point, if you haven't read The Illustrated Mum, it's about a mother who has bipolar and her two children. And it's, yeah, one of the most powerful of Jacqueline Wilson's books because the mother is absent in a way that, like a lot of other Jacqueline Wilson books, the children take it upon themselves to look after the mm. mother, but the mother is absent in a very real way here because her mind is not there. It plays on so many anxieties you have as a child. The mother doesn't come home to sleep, she doesn't take care of them. She's quite neglectful, but she she's also... unpredictable as well. I think that's yeah. an important aspect of it. She's unpredictable, and there is something about the motherly figure that is a, a huge source of stability for the child. For you know, and and the unpredictability of the mother um, when she becomes this other mother, like perhaps in Coraline, when you can't quite anticipate the way she's going to react, then that calls into questions a lot of things. How can I anticipate that she's still going to love me tomorrow? Well, Marigold, the mother in the illustrated mum is brilliant fun sometimes. Her children, Dolphin and Star, love her because she's so much fun sometimes, but it's this unpredictability that causes the Mm. older sister to completely disassociate from her and attempt to go off with her dad, and that drives the younger child almost insane because she can't predict what she's going Mm. to do next. But a striking feature of this is despite the fact that... Or I think it's quite striking because the whole way through the book there's these ups and downs and absences absences followed by periods of intense closeness because partly, I suppose, because the younger child, the narrator, is so desperate for this bond with her mother. The descriptions of their time together are really intense. But... Ultimately, the mother loves both the children. She is always... That is solid throughout the book. So even though she may have these absences, she may not be able to take care of them as well as a more normal mother. The fact that she loves them is unshakable and pure. And you think, uh, Lauren, that it's quite a recurrent... Thing associated to the figure of the mother in children's literature that however awful they may be however scary they may be ultimately and however hated actually they may be by their children ultimately the mother is um never a completely bad mother it's a mother who completely um who still has love for the child who still has some kind of maternal um instinct towards the child and i think here if we're gonna talk about bad mothers um a striking example of that is mrs coulter in philip pullman's his dark materials um it is revealed quite um, early on in the series that um, 
Lyra, the heron, um, her mother is Mrs. Coulter, who is an incredibly distant, cold, unpredictable, once again, figure, person. You could describe her as evil. She is described she is as evil. evil in mm, the book. She's a bit of a witch. She's a child killer, essentially. Yeah. She kills children, is solely out for her own gain and her own ambition. But... But suddenly in the third book, in a sort of Sleeping Beauty type of twist, uh, she is she suddenly starts nurturing this very strong maternal instinct for Lyra. I think it's unfair to say suddenly, because... It develops. From the start, the reason that Lyra moves in with her at the start of the first book is that Mrs. Coulter has suddenly taken an interest in mm. her. And I think you, you do see that develop through the book. She does love her child. She rescues Lyra mm. from the silver guillotine. Um, that she has outbursts of affection. Exactly. But they culminate in one final self-sacrificing act of heroism where she gives her life to save her child and she gives a little speech to Lord Azrael, who is Lyra's father, about how the love came for Lyra came like a thief in the night. She didn't realise it was going to come, but it was like a little mustard seed. It got bigger and bigger until it split her heart wide open. And now all she can do is give the last of herself to her child. Mm. Once again, we have the incredible sanctification here of the mother dying for the child. Um, which 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 we found in Harry Potter as well earlier. Which is interesting because although sorry, major spoiler alert, but again, if you haven't read the His Dark Materials books, what are you do listening <laughs> to this? Um, Lord Azrael sacrifices himself at the same time, but Lord Azrael sacrifices himself for this utopian vision mm. for a new world that couldn't exist without Lyra being able to succeed in her mission, which necessitates him and Mrs. Coulter killing this angel. They can only do it together. They can't do it separately. But Mrs. Coulter is not motivated by that at all. She's solely motivated by mm. her love for Lyra. So it's as if it's as if the the dysfunctional, terrible, horrible mothers were really so because of mental illness rather than because simply they don't love their child. So you have, we've talked about the illustrated mum. There is the Tracy Beaker series uh, by Jacqueline Wilson as well. There's also this dysfunctional absent mother who keeps coming back and leaving again. Um, There's Tallahassee Higgins by Mary Darling Han, which was a book that had a big influence on me as well as a teenager, where the mother um, leaves the, the, the child, uh, the, the little girl in care of someone and then comes back, but then leaves again and then comes back and then leaves again. And, and at the, you know, it's profoundly unsettling to have this mother who keeps running away, but there's always the presumption that there is something wrong with their mind. There, it's not that they are bad mothers, it's that they are, you know, they are dysfunctional people and this expresses itself in their way of um, of being mothers, but nothing in the motive of mother, in the in the concept of motherhood, is really truly unsettled by this. It's more these particular examples of people cannot fulfil their motherhood function because they are dysfunctionalist people. Exactly, Tracy Beaker is slightly different than that. I think in that um, you never see the mother. I don't think in the series. I think I've read this three, aren't there? And I'm pretty sure you never see the series. The most recent one about Tracy Beaker in a play is heartbreaking because she really wants her mother to go. And that's one of the books that I read as an adult and thought any adult reading this, it would just break their heart, how it's narrated with Mm. the child, with all the hope that the mother's going to come and she doesn't. But the mother's only ever absent. She doesn't 
do anything awful. She's just not there. And that's the closest Jacqueline Wilson's books get, I think, to a mother not loving their child. But the absence is heartbreaking. And the weight, I think it's interesting to, to consider the, 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 the dimension to which the, the child is waiting for the mother. And, I mean, one heartbreaking example of a child wait, waiting for the mother is in, in Bambi, quite simply, when, when he runs across the forest and, uh, and then we hear um, you know, gunshots and then he waits. He waits for his mother to arrive and she never arrives. And instead of her, it's, her fa- it's his father coming uh, and saying to him, you know, now you have to go on. And so there's this whole motif of the waiting for the, for the absent mother, waiting for the, for the mother, in this case, the bad mother. Um, but she's excused in one case because she died and in the other case because she's profoundly um, dysfunctional as a human being. There's only one book I've ever read where the mother is just a bad mother. She's not a stepmother and there's no redeeming sense that she might be awful but she does love the child it is A Solitary Blue by Cynthia Voigt it's one of the Tillerman series if you have not read the Tillerman series you really should read at least the first one it's a very interesting concept here again with a mother who abandons her four children in a, in a car park oh yeah mm. but again she loves the children she loves the children but she has many problems <laughs> yeah she just can't look after them but she really loves the children yeah and, and the children embark in a in a you know, trip around the US to go and see their grandmother. Yeah, it's really good. Definitely read it. And um, the third one in the series, A Solitary Blue, is, well, it's simpler and more complex in a way, in that the mother is, has been absent for a while. Um, Jeff has grown up without his mum. And one day, when he's 12, she gets in touch completely out of the blue. He hasn't heard from her for years and years and years. And she goes. he goes and stays with her um, for the summer. He has such a lovely time. Um, he goes back and he just can't settle at anything. He's, he's so depressed to be home because he deifies the mother. He describes his mother as an angel. She's the most beautiful person he's ever met. She brought sunlight into his life. The next time he goes... It's evident to the reader, you should, I should point out, that the mother is very selfish and only particularly interested in herself at this point she occasionally abandons him to go and see a boyfriend the next summer he goes to see her and she abandons him for pretty much a whole week because she goes off with this boyfriend and from that point on he he decides he hates her and at the end she tries to get some money out of him and steal his inheritance so there's never any sense in this book that she is anything other than evil and mm. it ends with Jeff just accepting she is who she is and he doesn't have to have anything to do with her. But isn't it in itself a, quite an optimistic conclusion in the sense that his relation to her was almost um, almost unhealthily sexual or romantic um, and, that, and that he needed to break out of this complex in order to regain some control over his life because clearly he deifies her as you said and sanctifies her and you know, might need to find his own his own way in life. Well, if you read it, it's more to do with her personality. Mm. That yet it was inevitable that he was going to be completely overjoyed by the concept of suddenly having his mother, who was beautiful and glamorous. Mm, this is what I mean. There, there seems so, to be a lot of uh, visual attributes of uh, of attraction between the two. Yeah, there probably are, but she, but just how she behaves mm. with him and how. She is a mother that puts her own needs before that of her child. Mm. And that is unacceptable, isn't it? Yeah. That's the one thing, that's the taboo thing. The mother, once she becomes a mother, there is the idea that sacrifice is possible and even, you know, even normalised. 
And I suppose that's what I'm trying to say. As a reader, to me, it didn't feel more like Jeff needed to break free of this unhealthy attraction because it's unhealthy to be your mother like that. It felt like he needed to break free of this unhealthy attraction because she wasn't who he Mm. thought she was. And it's not healthy for him to remain in a relationship where he she treats him like that. Mm. So that's an interesting motive of the because when you have the, mo- the motherly sacrifice, which is an ongoing theme in children's literature, there seems to be the literal sacrifice, that is to say, death, which is probably more common in fantasy, probably more, more common in because really in social realistic novels, what kind of really bodily sacrifice would you have but then there's the symbolic sacrifice of the mother sacrificing her life as an independent woman being completely in charge of the of the children and sacrificing different aspects of her life and here there's an interesting genesis to this if we look at the portrayal of young mothers in especially young adult literature Mm -hmm. so mothers who are teenagers or or you know barely adults who um fall pregnant and have a child and suddenly develop this incredible maternal instinct. We've talked many times about Twilight, but, you know, once again, <laughs> in Twilight, she suddenly realizes, having never wanted children, that feeling something nudging inside her body suddenly, you know, brings undi- undying love for yeah, her child. Yeah, she would die for that child. Noughts and Crosses. She does die for that she child. She does die for that child. <laughs> Noughts and Crosses by Mallory Blackman, the, 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 uh, the heron Sethi after sleeping with her boyfriend once, uh, falls pregnant and immediately falls in love with that child. And all of these young mothers' portrayals uh, sort of normalize the maternal instinct, normalize this thing that suddenly these people who were lived for themselves are suddenly living for someone else. Yeah, and I think J- uh, Melvin Burgess's junk goes even a step further in that regard because not it's not just that this maternal instinct changes... Gemma, the protagonist, the baby offers her a sort of redemption from the life she's been living. It's the fact that she's pregnant and her watching her friend Lily interacting with her son that makes her realise she's got to get out of this Mm. awful life on the streets and of prostitution because she can't do that to her baby. So pregnancy and motherhood there is not just deified, it's a it's her salvation yeah. from the life that she's living in, which is quite a strong statement. And it's that above anything else, above the poverty, above prostitution, above the drugs, above the violence that she's experienced, that leads her to go home and try and make a normal life again. It's almost, it's almost a new addiction, really. She was yeah. addicted to lots of other things, but suddenly she becomes addicted to the idea of leading the life of the mother with child. And obviously a lot of people would read that and think, well, obviously she's pregnant, you're going to put... You know, you are going to think about things differently. But it does require, you know, a whole complete Mm. change to her life. And, you know, a magic or almost unspeakable word in young adult literature, but she could have had an abortion. Mm. There was that option, but that's never even Mm. mentioned or discussed or Mm -hmm. postulated. Great. Um, I think we're going to have to wrap up soon because yeah. this has been a very intense episode and I'm not sure I'm going to be able to edit much out of it. Um, right. Is it fair to say that publishing um, is still very much publishing for children, is still very much in a, in a perspective of sanctifying uh, the mother and of still quite wary of presenting 
very evil or very indif indifferent mothers, people who are otherwise functional but not as mothers, because then the concept of motherhood itself would find itself demoted if normal people started not doing motherhood. Well, if you think about what is now discussed in even young adult literature, mm. you know, prostitution, drugs, they're fine to write about, violence, sex, teenage pregnancy, they're all fine. But it's still very rare to come across a novel with a bad mother that, this is the important bit, doesn't love their child. Yep. So hatred of the child for the mother is accepted. Oh, yeah. Hatred of the mother for the child is very hard. And yeah, so I would definitely say that the concept of the bad mother is the scariest thing in children's literature. It's that last taboo that has a, you know, no one's crossed yet. <laughs> Excellent. So the mother has the scariest thing in children's literature. Brilliant. We'll end on that note. And next time we will see you to talk about... Nature. Nature in children's literature. And I'm sure this will take us back to the concept of motherhood, at least to a degree. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the episode. Thank you very Go much. to our website, kidyounotpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at kidyounotpod. And you can always email us at kidyounotpodcast at gmail.com. Have a lovely month. <laughs> Bye.